Now in uh, the word Messiah is a Hebrew word, uh, and that word means anointed or anointed one. Another form of the word is to use it as a verb, to, to anoint. And these words are used throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have Christos, or Christ. And that's the Greek equivalent, and that's the term that is used across the New Testament, sometimes as the name, Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's used as the title, the adjective, the Christ, Jesus the Christ. Some of the newer translations um, and depending on the context, we'll make that translation and say Jesus the Christ, or may even still put in just the word Messiah to help us understand. Um, but, we, but that's the meaning of the word. But if the word means to anoint, we see that in several places in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see that priests are referred to as the anointed. We see that kings are anointed. And we read of the anointing of prophets. But the highest use of this term is the one, is, is in reference to the one promised by God, the coming of a figure chosen and anointed by God to deliver and redeem his people. Anointing was seen as a sign of being chosen by God for a special task of leadership or responsibility. The Old Testament looked ahead to the final coming of such a figure, the Messiah, to usher in a new era in the history of the people of God. And the New Testament sees this expectation fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The subject of the Messiah is extensive, and it has an immense field to study. <laughs> Uh, and not only in Old Testament and New Testament passages, but also in Jewish and Christian literature. That being said, we're going to try and hit a number of major points today and have kind of an overview so that we just have a slightly better understanding of what it means that Jesus is the Messiah and what we're looking at with that. Now, our first point, if you've got your outline, our first point there is chosen by God. In the Old Testament, anointing is used as an indication that someone is chosen by God or that an item was consecrated to the Lord, set apart, made holy for the Lord. We see this for the elements of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. Now, in the Old Testament, we see two types of anointing, one with oil and one with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at a couple of examples of each of these. So first there is anointing with oil. Chosen by God, and the first under there is anointing with oil. Now, anointing with oil or a perfume was a custom in several of the civilizations in the region. Um, it was used to keep skin from drying in the hot climate. It was used to cleanse. It was used as an expression of joy and then to display grief and mourning. You would, not be, you would not anoint yourself with oil or perfume as, a, as a, a symbol of grief or mourning. Oil and perfume was used medicinally as well as part of the preparation for bodies for burial. Now, within the Jewish religious tradition, oil was used to anoint someone or something as consecrated to the, to the Lord. 
And really the first religious use of anointing found in scripture is when Jacob sets up his stone at Bethel and anoints it because he's consecrating it as something special. And he does this after he had that dream of a ladder with angels going to and going to and coming from God's throne in heaven. That stone or that place was being set apart or consecrated for a sacred pur- purpose. And years later, when Jacob returns, he fulfills his vow and offers a sacrifice there. Later, under the Mosaic law, the priests and the high priest were anointed to service to the Lord. And we see this being communicated by the Lord in Exodus 30 and verses 23 through 25, as well as verses 30 through 33. And we see that a specific recipe for that mixture was to be used. And we see that this anointing was carried out in Leviticus chapter 8. Leviticus 8 verse 10 says, And also Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. Then verse 12 says, And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Other passages of seeing oil being used to anoint people or things, we see it in 1 Samuel 16, 2 Samuel 2 and 5, 1 Kings 1, 2 Kings 9, Psalm 89. These are all references to oil being used in anointing. Now, figuratively, the anointing with oil, the anointing for consecration of a person, was seen as the endowment of the Holy Spirit upon that person for the duties of that office they were to fulfill. So when a priest or a prophet poured the oil over the man to become king, it was seeing, it was figuratively representing the spirit coming and resting on him as God's chosen to go do that office. So that's our second point under chosen by God, anointing with the Holy Spirit, anointing with the Holy Spirit. Now in the Old Testament, as we indicated, the Holy Spirit is only indicated in anointing certain people for service. Now this is readily seen in the book of Judges, where we read several times, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. But the Spirit also came upon prophets, came upon Moses, Joshua, King Saul, David, etc., etc., A spiritual anointing is, as one source puts it, is to say that the Holy Spirit gives the leaders of Israel extraordinary authority, governmental administration, military capacity, artful craft, and other abilities. These were special provisions from God that ordinary people did not receive. Moses and Joshua, for instance, were deeply dependent on the leadership of the Spirit of God. So are the judges. However, within the New Testament, or excuse me, within the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's anointing or presence with an individual was not permanent. In Judges 16.20, after Delilah had Samson's hair cut, we are told that the Lord had departed from him. We also see this with King Saul, that after the Lord had rejected his kingship and had chosen David, the Spirit left Saul. 
in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. And that previous verse, 1 Samuel 16, 13, records that the spirit was with David after Samuel anointed him with oil as king. Now, even David realized that the spirit could leave him, that this could have happened to him. In Psalm 51, verse 11, in the psalm where David is repenting of his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. This, and this was before the Lord had established his covenant with David. These incidents with Samson and Saul, we can see this as a form of discipline for disobedience. David was repenting and he realized that this could have happened to him too. Now, other passages that show a spiritual anointing from the Lord include Isaiah 61, 1, which is quoted by Jesus in Luke 4, 18. Isaiah 11, 2. Isaiah 42, 1, which is also quoted in the New Testament in Matthew 12, verse 18. These Isaiah passages are prophetic to the Christ, the Messiah. And we will see a little later that the Messiah was expected to be anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, those being anointed is seen as a sign of national and spiritual leadership. That's our second main point here, a sign of national and spiritual leadership. And letter A there is anointed to be king. And 1 Chronicles 29 verse 22 says, So they ate and drank before the Lord with great gladness on that day. And they made Solomon the son of David king the second time and anointed him before the Lord to be the leader and Zadok to be priest. Now we touched on this passage back when we were talking about Thanksgiving. This was around uh, dedicating materials for the building of the temple. Um, after they had brought all that in, the next day they had uh, a feast of thanksgiving. Uh, and during that time, and it says a second time there, but during that time we see Solomon presented and anointed as king before the people. And then Zadok was, was then anointed as the high priest. So we see there... Um, they're being anointed for spiritual and national leadership, but we see primarily they're talking about Solomon. Now this goes back even to Saul. Saul, the first king of Israel, was anointed by the prophet priest of Samuel by the direction of God. Now there are other instances of the kings being anointed in the Old Testament, and this wasn't a Jewish thing. This was done in other cultures as well. David was anointed by Samuel, as we mentioned earlier. As we just mentioned, Solomon was anointed. And they were duly anointed kings over the united kingdom of Israel. Other examples we have is Jehu was the Lord's anointed king for the northern kingdom, though the Lord later removed him. Another example is Joash was the anointed king over Judah, the southern kingdom, and he was anointed as a child. But he was of the lineage of David. He was the heir properly. Others are mentioned as being made king 
over the land, but doesn't specifically mention anointing. Though the ceremony of anointing kings was not unheard of, like I said, in the greater region. This, was, this happened in civilizations all around. It seems that scripture only mentions the anointing of kings a few times. And these seem to happen in accounts where the Lord needs to publicly clarify whom he chose to rule over the people. Saul, especially, the, the people came to Samuel and said, set us a king over us. We want to be like everybody else. Give us a king. The Lord gave them Saul. David was anointed publicly. Well, he was anointed privately, but he was made king. Solomon was anointed publicly. And we see it with, uh, even in the account of Joash that I mentioned. There was a coup during that time. He was hidden in the temple. And when he was a little bit older, about the age of seven, the priest brought him out, called in loyal troops and said, this is your king and anointed him before the people at the temple. It seems that, that the Lord, that scriptures only uh, clarify anointing of kings when the Lord needs to publicly say, this is who I chose to rule. Now, one source tells us that the Bible sometimes refers to the anointed kings of Israel as the anointed of the Lord. This title seems to signify that the anointed kings were set apart to serve under the Lord, somewhat like a vassal king to a high king. The description of Cyrus, king of Persia, a worshiper of pagan gods as the anointed of the Lord, suggests the phrase may refer not just to kings who were devoted to the Lord, but those whom the Lord gave a holy leadership task to bring about deliverance and justice on behalf of his people. So though the Lord was the true king over the children of Israel, he appointed or willed certain people to sit and rule under him. The king of Israel was directly responsible to the Lord for the civil leadership of the nation. These vassal kings were supposed to honor the Lord. They were the visible ruler leader of the nation. The Lord was still king. Israel never stopped being a theocracy when God established Saul as its first king. He was still ruling, and he could, and as he showed, he can remove kings and put new kings in. Now, let her be there as anointed to be priest. Anointed to be priest. Uh, Exodus 40, which we mentioned a little bit earlier, the Lord speaking to Moses. Uh, in verse 13 says, you shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them in with tunics. You shall anoint them as you anointed their father that they may minister to me as priests. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Now there's some other passages that describe, describe the anointing of priests. These are Exodus 28, Exodus 29, Leviticus 7, Leviticus 8, as we read earlier, Leviticus 16, and Numbers 3. The point, as we touched on earlier, is that the priests had specific duties and a specific role. Their role was 
kind of that of mediator between the Lord and the people. The priests were the anointed as they were anointed as they took office. As I mentioned earlier, Exodus 30 gives a very specific mixture of the for the oil used to anoint these priests in the articles of the tabernacle. And this mixture was to be considered holy for this purpose alone, set apart for this reason only. No one else was to have this blend for personal use or to make this blend for any other reason. The priesthood, the tabernacle, the altar, and the other articles and tools of the tabernacle were holy and consecrated to the Lord. One source summarizes the priesthood and says the, the, the priests were responsible for teaching Israel's God's instructions for life and holiness, for leading the people in appropriate worship of God, for discerning the will of God generally and in difficult legal cases, for blessing the people, and for assessing their ritual cleanness. The priests, however, also represented Israel before God as they offered sacrifices on the people's behalf. Although the priest was not normally the one who killed the sacrificial animal, he did sprinkle its blood on the altar on behalf of the person who offered it. So in that description, we see an element of how the priest worked in this role as mediator. He helped the people understand God's will in general and sometimes in difficult situations. He was able, they were able to declare, yes, you're clean. No, you're not clean for different, different rituals and, and different elements of ceremony. But at the same time, he also functioned as mediator between Israel to God when they brought their sacrifices. And he was the one that would put their sacrifices on the altar. He was the one that would sprinkle the blood because he was representing, he was consecrated to the Lord. He was functioning as God's priest, but bringing the people's sacrifice. Letter C there is anointed to be prophet. Anointed to be prophet. Some passages that refer to this, 1 Kings 19, 16, Isaiah 48, 16, Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 37, and Micah 3. Now, the prophets of God seem to be only anointed by the Spirit. I couldn't find any reference of a prophet being anointed with oil. They only seem to be anointed by the Spirit within Scripture. In 1 Kings 19.16, God speaks to Elijah and tells him to go anoint Jehu, king over Israel, and Elisha as the prophet after Elijah. However, when we see Elijah go and call Elisha, he doesn't anoint him with oil. He actually takes his mantle, his cloak, and throws it on Elisha's back and says, come follow me. So it seems that the anointing of Elisha in, verse, uh, in 1 Kings 19 was figurative. But as we see through Elisha's work with Elijah and then after, he was anointed by the Spirit. The prophets in the Old Testament appear in a few ways. Um, many are mentioned as part of a group or a guild. Uh, we see the sons of prophets found in 2 Kings 2, 4, 6, and 9. 
Uh, Saul meets a King Saul meets a group of prophets in 1 Samuel 10. Another way uh, prophets functioned was that they were could be a part of the royal court as advisors. We see this with the prophets Nathan and Gad with the with King David in 1 and 2 Samuel. Other prophets acted on their own after having received a call from the Lord. Now, one source describes prophets this way. In the Old Testament, the prophet is a person who functions as God's spokesperson as in, and is commissioned by him to deliver his word, either to individuals or to Israel as a whole. The prophet receives the word of God through various means, dreams, visions, and theophanies. The prophet is often called with the title man of God, emphasizing the prophet's commissioning by God, or the title seer, emphasizing the prophet's unique ability to receive divine message, not, uh, rather than the means by which he received it. Only one who had the faculty of prophetic seeing is able to receive the message of God. In other words, the prophet of God was God's spokesperson and was anointed by the Lord through the Holy Spirit. He was the one to go to Israel as a whole, as we see in many times in the books of the prophets in the Old Testament, or to speak to individuals. We see that with Elijah. He goes to Ahab. He goes to Jezebel. We see that with the prophet Nathan, who goes back to David and says, you have sinned against the Lord. So the prophets were God's spokesmen, revealing God's will and God's word to the people. The letter D there is anointed to be judge, anointed to be judge. Now the coming of the spirit on some of the judges is a spiritual anointing. Uh, we see this in Judges 3, Judges 6, uh, chapter 11, and chapter 15. The judges of Israel that the Lord raised up were only ever anointed by the Lord for their service. They weren't anointed by oil. Not that I could find. Unger's Bible Dictionary summarizes, The judges were men, excepting Deborah, who procured justice or right for the people of Israel not only by delivering them from the power of their enemies, but also by administrating, administering the laws and rights of the Lord. Judging in this sense was different, from the was different from the administration of civil jurisprudence and included the idea of government, such as would be expected from a king. Alongside the extraordinary roles, rule of the judges, the ordinary administration of justice and government of the commonwealth still remain in the hands of the heads of the tribes and the elders of the people. So in the time before the kings of Israel, these individuals, like the prophets, were responsible directly to God, and like the kings, were responsible directly to God and were called specifically by him and who called them to service. They were, for a time, in a specific portion of the land, ruling and ruled what the Lord had declared right and reestablishing right. Often they had to do military service to overcome enemies to because the people had sinned and were being judged by the Lord. But these judges would rise up as rulers and help overthrow that and reestablish saying, 
This happened because you walked away from the law of God. Let's get them out of here and let's get back to the law. Now, these judges really weren't, as typically seen, there weren't a dynasty. There were a few, but we see some instances of that. But for the most part, it was that judge was called, they ruled, their life was over, that judge is gone. And another one would be raised in another part. So the nation had, over the hundreds of years, several individuals that functioned as God's representatives for ruling, for mediating for the people, for speaking for God and declaring justice and righteous and right. But all these people could only do in part what the future Messiah could do completely. And that's our third point here, the future Messiah, the future Messiah. Letter A there is the biblical view. I've left space there if you want to make some notes. I don't have anything specific in mind there. Uh, but letter A is the biblical view, the biblical view. Now, the Old Testament is filled with prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah. Jesus fulfilled many of these prophecies. We're going to look at a few of these verses, but we're going to see that Messiah is seen biblically and functioning in different roles. The Gospel of Matthew was written presenting Jesus as the Messiah King the Jews were expecting, that they were looking for. And at least 11 times, Matthew explicitly shows a messianic prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, my first, what I first have under here is that the future anointed king. The scriptures are pretty clear that an expected great and mighty king, an ideal king, would come and rule Israel. A strong focus on this view began after the division of the kingdom, after the reign of Solomon, and then later after the collapse of the northern kingdom. There was a strong hope of a return to the glories of the United Kingdom under David and Solomon. That this would ha and this would happen under the new David. Many of the prophets began announcing a time of judgment followed by a restoration. Many of the prophecies had a royal messianic expectations. The prophets during and after the exile also have this expectation that David's descendant would come and rule Israel to restore Israel to its former glory of David and Solomon, even surpassing those glories, that there would be peace and prosperity like nothing the world had seen. The predominant view of the Messiah in the Old Testament was that of king deliverer, king ruler, king restorer. This goes back to Genesis. Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Isaiah 16.5, In mercy the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth, in the tabernacle of David, in the house of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. 
We see other kingly messianic prophecies in Numbers 24, 2 Samuel 7, several Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 110, Psalm 132, Isaiah 9, Ezekiel 37, Micah 5.2, which is common, and Zechariah 9.9, which is familiar to us. And even in that uh, Isaiah passage I read, Isaiah 16, we see this element of judge. And like I said, when we're talking about the judges, there seems to be a certain aspect to what they were doing that was king-like, but that there was no uh, monarchy, no dynasty with them. So there's even the kind of this element that the future Messiah king would also function as judge. And we see this a little bit in like Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, and Micah 4. That this Messiah would come, he would rule, and he would declare right and restore, reestablish what needed to be. Now Christ in his advent, in his coming, began to fulfill many of these prophecies of the Messiah King. But Christ will establish his earthly throne at his second coming. This kingdom during the millennium will be mediatorial as Christ, we, as Christ will rule as the king priest on earth, but also that God will be ruling through Christ. But because Christ is God the Son and equal with God the Father, his reign will never end. Even though the millennium will come to an end, Christ's reign will never end as we move into eternity future. Now, the future anointed, the future Messiah was also seen as the, an anointed priest. And there are a couple of passages that indicate the Messiah will function as priest. Psalm 110 verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is an obscure person we see in Genesis who was mentioned as a priest and a king of the, of the city Salem, and Abraham gave tithe to him. But we see that function of priest-king in that person. Now in Zechariah 6.12, we also see this. Then speaking to him, saying, this is the Lord speaking to Zechariah, saying, speaking to Joshua the high priest, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, behold, the man whose name is Branch, from his place shall branch he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory, and it shall sit and rule on his throne. And he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, Zechariah has messages to Joshua the high priest and the, the governor of the area, Zerubbabel, who was a descendant of David and the current true heir to Israel. So some take these passages, especially this passage of Zechariah 6, and see two messiahs, a messiah king and a messiah priest, with some making the priest higher and ruler than the, than the king. While others see this as a blending of the two offices into one person, a single King priest. This single function, this, this person that singly functions as priest and king has been part of Christian testimony for centuries. 
And in fact, a major theme in the book of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament presents Jesus Christ as the great high priest and presents him again and again in the light of Psalm 110.4, according to the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus, being our high priest, ever before the Father, ever interceding for us, making atonement for us, is an important part of the doctrines of sin and salvation. Now, the future Messiah was also seen as an anointed prophet. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, I referenced these earlier. These verses read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now, another verse that references the Messiah as prophet is Deuteronomy 18, and we touched about that uh, uh, last week. Christ claimed his Messiahship as prophet when he, procl- when he read Isaiah 61, verses 1 and the first portion of verse 2 in the synagogue in Nazareth and proclaimed that those verses have been fulfilled in their reading that day. Jesus was presenting himself as Messiah prophet. He is the perfect revealer of God's will and counsel. He reveals God's will for salvation of sinners. His teaching, teachings and miracles attested to his office of prophet. A number of his predictions came true during his time. Others we are still waiting for. But those were future events. Now, letter B I have here under is Jewish view. And I kind of wanted to spend a little bit of time here. I'm going to try and wrap up quickly. I know we're getting late. Um, But we want to really understand why, what the Jew was expecting for for what the Messiah was to look like. Unger's Bible Dictionary in its section of the Jewish view of Messiah begins this way. While the Jewish expectation had been deepening and in some respects becoming more definite and true during the centuries preceding the Christian era, so that at the time of our Lord's appearing it seemed to await its immediate fulfillment, yet the Jewish people were not prepared to recognize Jesus as the Christ. The reason is found in the rabbinical and popular, popularly received ideas of the Messiah. The fatal mistake of the Jews was not rejecting the scriptures, but in giving to them a narrow and unspiritual interpretation. The Jews had been defining and coming to grip what they expected of the Messiah over the years coming up to the first century AD. But during that time, they really didn't grab, it's not that they forsake scripture, but it was just that their views were so narrow that they were following more the popular ideas and the rabbinical traditional teaching and not the inter- proper interpretation of Scripture. 
So that Jesus, when he confronts them, says in John 5.39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. The Jewish view of the Messiah, especially in the time of Christ, was, as noted above, very narrowed and very nationalistic. The Jewish viewed, view embraced such things as the pre-existence of the Messiah, his being greater than Moses and above angels, his cruel suffering and death on behalf of his people, his work on behalf of the living and the dead, his redeeming and restoring Israel, being opposed by Gentiles, their partial judgment and conversion, the prevalence of his law and the universal blessings in the last days and his kingdom. But, Dr. Unger continues, the same interpretation left out certain elements of greatest and governing importance. The doctrines of original sin and of the sinfulness of man's whole nature were greatly reduced from their scripture meaning and were practically omitted from the prevalent Jewish teaching. Consequently, the deepest thought of the Messiahship, the salvation of the world from sin, was lacking in keeping with this, the priestly office of the Messiah was lost sight of, as was the prophetic office of Messiah. The all-absorbing ideas were those of kingship and deliverance, and these were chiefly of national significance. The restoration of national glory was the great hope of Israel. All else was subordinate to that. So when Christ came, not as the mighty king deliverer, but the humble king servant, Zechariah 9, 9, the humble king coming on the, on the foal of a donkey, he was not recognized by the nation as the Messiah. He was seen as a teacher, a miracle worker, a prophet, but not Messiah. Today, the main body of Jews still look for the gathering of Jews to the land, for their restoration of national glory in the promised land that will coincide with an era of peace and harmony among the people of the world. However, there is great difference of opinions as to the method and means of how this will be accomplished. Messiah may mean a particular person born a Jew, or some conjunction of events brought about by the Jewish people. Jesus of Nazareth, by his own words, his own actions, the revelation of Scripture through the work of the Holy Spirit, the witness and testimony of his disciples, is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed of God. Jesus was not what the Jew expected but fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. From his virgin birth to his suffering and death. Now, is all Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah fulfilled yet? No. So we continue to look for his second coming. And until he removes his church from this world, we have to spread the gospel. We have to tell a sin-cursed world that the time of salvation is near. That we can experience an eternal life with God without death, disease, or sorrow, and be forgiven for sins. 
Now, if there are any here today who have questions about the gospel or how they may know for certain they can be forgiven of sins, I invite you to come forward during this last song and I would be happy to meet with you after service. We're a little bit over. Let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for these prophecies that tell us who who to be looking for and who the Messiah is. We thank you that you are faithful and true and that you have fulfilled your promises and that the Messiah came the Son of God, the mighty King, the Ancient of Days, wrapped in human flesh, born and placed in a feeding trough, born to humble peasants. Grew up, taught, and died a horrible death on the cross. Lord, we thank you that Messiah has come, that Jesus has come. We thank you for the provision of salvation through his work. And we pray that even during this Christmas time, the gospel will be spread, the gospel will be proclaimed. And though we celebrate the coming of Messiah during this time of year, let us not forget that the cross, that the work of the cross is salvation, not just the baby in the manger. As miraculous and wondrous and marvelous as that is, that God the Son wrapped in human flesh came to earth, but the cross was in the shadow of the manger and that, that is the only thing that will fix our sin problem. Help us to remember these. Help us to spread the gospel even during this time. Help us to continue to seek after you and be better disciples of Christ. We pray these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.